Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. Recently, I received an email from a Live Inspired community member that moved me to tears. I'm gonna read this email to you now, and I want you to prepare yourself for it because it becomes emotional throughout. It comes to us from our friend Martina, and it goes like this. John, my son Thomas had been playing with matches in our house, and I found a copy of a book called Overwhelming Odds at a Catholic Supply Store here in St. Louis, so I read it to Thomas. Thomas was nine years old when we read that book together. John, he looked up to you, and he looked up to the work you did and the work you do. Years later, since that event, we even discussed the podcast. We've been discussing it since its inception. When Thomas enlisted in 2016, the Live Inspired podcast became a source of home. Your words made Thomas feel like he was at home. It made sense to him. He felt so connected to you for years, and you have no idea the impact that you were making on Thomas. Fast forward to 2019. Thomas turned 22 in January. He was deployed, and when he came back to the United States on February 14th, 11 days later, he died by suicide, February 25th, 2019. Since then, I've been trying to pick up the pieces of life. I've been trying to care for my daughters, my family, and my husband, as well as myself. I continue working in the pharmaceutical industry, focusing on mental health, and in addition, I began working part-time in a psychiatric area as a nurse practitioner. John, we need to continue the discussion about suicide in our country. We need to practice kindness every day, no matter what. Recently, I was part of the honor team with Operation Enduring Warriors. My sister and I honored Thomas at a Spartan race in Colorado, where we completed a 10 and a half mile course alongside veterans who faced physical and emotional challenges. One of those Operation Enduring Warriors, or OEW veterans, was a guy named Jonathan Lopez. Operation Enduring Warrior has a passion that is palpable. It is a winning organization. They are the real deal. They work to continue the conversations, engage soldiers and first responders, and create a family, a place that they can turn to with a purpose for recovery. My son Thomas and Jonathan had an electric connection. They fed off one another and they tried to help others. Thomas always looked up to Jonathan. John, I encourage you to reach out to Jonathan as we continue improving the physical and emotional mental health of those in our country. My friends, that is part of the email that my friend Martina sent our way. She also included some beautiful photos of that race and of her son that I'll include in the show notes for this episode. According to the 2019 National Veteran Suicide Prevention Annual Report, over 45,000 American adults died from suicide in 2017, and more than 6,000 of those who took their life were U.S. veterans. It has exceeded more than 6,000 veterans taking their own life each year since 2008. That is more than 16 every single day. There is not a single path or an all-encompassing explanation for suicide. My friends, there are many adversities we all face in life. Some of them outward-facing, physical. Many of them, though, will be emotional. There'll be scars we carry only on the insides of our hearts and our minds and our experiences. We have today a guest on our show who can speak to both. His name is Jonathan Lopez. Jonathan is a U.S. Army infantry veteran where an accident resulted in the loss of a limb and nearly the loss of his life. As Martina shared, he is a member of Operation Enduring Warrior. It's a veteran-founded not-for-profit 501c3 whose mission it is to honor, empower, and motivate our nation's wounded military and law enforcement veterans through physical, mental, and emotional rehabilitation. 
My friends, today, Jonathan joins us for a raw, and it is gonna be raw. It's gonna be emotional. It's gonna be honest conversation around serving our country, learning how to accept the unexpected circumstances of life and challenges in life that are gonna sprout from that. He's also gonna be encouraging and inspiring all of us, regardless of our challenges and circumstances, to do the same in our own walk. Here's what I'm gonna encourage you to do right now. Buckle up, open wide your heart, your mind, your journals, get ready to share this episode with your friends. I think it's the kind that ladies and gentlemen that you work with, that you worship with, that you work out with, that you do life with might benefit from hearing. His name is Jonathan Lopez. I think he is an incredible hero. This is gonna be a great story for you and a great life to learn from. Jonathan Lopez, welcome my friend to Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. Thank you, John. Wow. I'm going to tell you the feeling is mutual. I started learning about your story not long ago. Martina made the connection and she told me since the beginning, you are going to love John. You guys share so much in common. Sometimes we have to take those moments in life that really we don't like too much and make the best out of it. To honor Thomas' life, I want to say um, thank you because um you are helping to spread a message. It's a problem that we're currently having in the military. And our job with Operation Enduring Warrior is trying to bring it to an end, trying to let everyone know that there is other ways, you know, there are alternatives. Yes, well, we'll be talking about those alternatives, how you learned about them, what you're doing with it today, and ultimately, Jonathan, what it means to our listeners. So this is a message that uh, is close to you and me and clearly Martina, but I think it's a story that affects every single one of us in this community. One and a half million United States citizens last year attempted to take their own life by suicide. It's chronic, it's everywhere, and we don't talk about it enough. So today on this podcast, you're gonna be talking a bit about that, but a lot more about life. And so, man, I, I'm humbled, I'm excited. So without further ado, let's just dive right in. I normally spend a bit of time talking about the upbringing, the past, if you will, of our guests. But I'm, I'm gonna speed up the tape just a little bit with you. You joined the United States Army at age 17. Wh yes, what sir. was it about the Army that, uh, what were you enlisting into? I'm gonna be honest. I joined the Army at 17. I mean, I love my country. I wanted to serve. I wanted a job that would pay me to jump out of airplanes and blow stuff up. <laughs> and the military was the only one with that criteria. Right. But. In reality, a lot of us that joined the military is because um, this is our only alternative. Yes, I was 17 and at that point, uh, didn't really have a, not a scholarship, nor a college fund from my parents. And I just needed to get out. I needed to get out. I needed to start my life. I'd gone through a lot of troubles growing up. The military was our way in. Once I joined the military, I became part of an amazing community. Mm -hmm. And I want to say like the bond that we share in the military, a big part of it is the fact that this is a home for many people who didn't have this before. Mm -hmm. When everybody's talking about the statistics about how many people are committing suicide, it's not just because of their military service. You got to see like the population that joined the army, a large percentage of them already came with some sort of trouble, right? came from a broken home, and these were the only options. I mean, to be honest, if at 17, I would have had the choice between serving or going to one of those colleges that you see in the movies where like people are playing volleyball in the front yard and they're having these crazy parties, I would have rather gone there for a few years, but I didn't have that option. So it was not an option you had. You took the option that you had in front of you, you joined the army at 17 young, you become an infantry soldier, a paratrooper, you serve with the first infantry, deployed in the Yugoslav wars, and you're around brotherhood, man. You're on mission, your life is good, you're directed and guided, and there's a very clear North Star in your life that's leading you forward. And then that begins to unwind, at first kind of slowly, and then incredibly dramatically. Talk about what the attraction was to special forces and why you weren't accepted. I wanted to make a difference. And everything that I, I always say, like, if you're going to do something, be the best or just don't do it. You know, life is too short to be wasting your time. Shortly after joining the military, I discovered that that, that was my passion, like being part of something. And I wanted to be more than just a regular soldier. I wanted to be those special guys that pretty much look over us. Prior to 
Special Forces Assessment and Selection. I have completed Ranger Indoctrination Program, Airborne School. I went to commando training with SAS. So I was on a path. I had a plan. Like everything was aiming towards becoming a Green Beret. Mm -hmm. The problem is that when I got my orders to go, I wasn't allowed to go because we were going on deployment. And my first sergeant said that we needed everyone. Once again, I just I didn't grow up with much. But um, when I came back from deployment, I can still tell you I had 23000 something dollars, an amount of money which I never had in my life. Right. Uh, I was single, so I lived in the barracks. So I can tell you um, that was my, like I told you earlier, if I would have had the choice between going to college and living this crazy life, that was our phase of crazy life. Like mm -hmm. we all came back from deployment. We had an incredible amount of money. Um, we're pretty relaxed because after you return, you have a lot of downtime. Yes. And we were having fun. Like everyone bought big TVs and there were parties and there were everything. So my orders came in to go to Special Forces Assessment and Selection. And so I did. I jumped on a plane. I was in Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And I was taken into Cap McCall, which is a Special Forces Training Center. Special Forces cadre, they have an ability to search or to like find your breaking point. And that's where you get tested, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, it's not about if you can run a five minute mile or a 10 minute mile, you know? It's how far can you go when your mind is telling you no. And I was a few days away from graduation. We were doing something, it's called the long walk which is the end of our land navigation phase. It's like, I don't know, like 60, 70 miles. And my feet hurt. They were supposed to hurt. Mm -hmm. Everything hurt. And like the only thing in my mind was, uh, why am I doing this? Everything that I ever wanted, everything that I imagined or that I, like, I wanted to have as a kid, it's all I already have it. It's back there in the barracks. You know, like I have a nice room. I have a good position in my company. Like everything, like the life of comfort, you know, that's the only thing in my mind with my feet back and everything hurt. And they asked me, like, you know, you're hurt, you're injured. And I couldn't answer. I just, I was just hurt, hurt enough that I didn't want to be there anymore. So I quit. You make a decision to quit that. And then a few days <laughs> later, your entire world ends up completely upside down. Why don't you share the story of what happens on that, that motorcycle ride? Yes, sir. Um, well, I returned to my unit on a Monday, the same week. It was a Thursday. I had just gotten out of formation. I was in a small base in Schwanford. It's a small town between Bamberg and Wurzburg. And right after formation, I left. I was going to the other base. From there, there is little flashes. Like I remember a helicopter. I remember a room where it's funny. I, I mean, I have only talked about this with my dad, but uh. I remember a room where I was laying down and there were doctors operating. I remember them taking my arm off and I remember they were going to remove the leg. And that's when I started flipping out. I was like, what are they doing? You know? Right, right. And there was someone standing next to me that told me, don't worry, you get it all back. So anyways, all these are just flashes. So when you say there was someone standing over me who says, don't worry, you'll get it all back. Mm -hmm. who, who do you think that person was? No idea. It was an older gentleman, but he was also in military uniform. He just told me not to worry, but like, it's funny because uh, they have just taken my arm. I mean, I'm watching this from the outside. They have just taken my arm and they were about to take off my leg. And when he says, don't worry, you get it back. I was like, oh, okay. Kind of like the worry was over. <laughs> so right. from that little clip, I kind of go into a next one, which is uh, I'm coming out of a airplane. And the funny thing is that all these actually like, happened. This is like a, the timeline, like, you know, from mm -hmm. the accident surgeries, they did remove my arm. They were fighting for my leg. It's funny because all these I knew, I don't know, subconsciously listening to say that people can hear mm -hmm. during surgeries. Mm -hmm. The first real clear memory was uh, when I was flown from Germany, they flew me into Andrews Air Force Base, which is uh, to move me to Walter Reed. So they, uh, the guy at the other end of the medevac, obviously, he receives the paperwork saying who's coming in. And he just looks at me, looks at the paperwork, looks at me again. And I remember him telling me, kind of like, ah, you're not as bad as your paperwork says. Because honestly, as like I sustained 17 fractures to my left leg, broke every single rib on the left side of my body. The arm was amputated at the accident. Like, uh, I was involved in a head-on collision in the autobahn. So, um, I landed 115 yards away from the accident. That's mm. over a football field. 
the estimated uh, speed of the accident was over 200 miles per hour. I was traveling, I believe, like uh, 105, 107. And the vehicle that was coming my way was 120 in a head-on collision. So I was pretty banged up. And Jonathan, that, that was a vehicle. You were a motorcycle. Yes, sir. The vehicle wins. And not only that, but the driver of the vehicle was also drinking. The guy that caused the accident didn't even, wasn't even really involved in the accident. He ended up cutting both of us, closing the lanes and pushing us like into a single lane. So we, we collide in front of him and he actually left the scene. For you, I'm just curious, and I've never heard you talk about this before, knowing that the person who inflicted this on you, who's going to change your life dramatically forever, drove on. When you think about that today, what, what, what comes to mind? Funny that you asked me that question and, and today. For the longest, it was something that bothered me because what I was upset is not about losing an arm or not, or not about anything. It was the circumstances of it, you know, not being in control. Right. And for the longest, like I always, I was upset that the justice wasn't served, you know, that uh, this person that, you know, like pretty much, I used to say destroyed my life or took my life away, you know, was free. But like at the end of the day, it's, it's just what happened. And like no longer ago, I started thinking, about that person, which probably, who knows if he's still alive today, uh, he was um, older at the time. Mm-hmm. That guy, I don't think he woke up in the morning and said, you know what, I'm just going to cause an accident or I'm gonna be responsible for these. So, you know what, I had to deal with what happened to me and I'm pretty sure it's something that he had to live with, with the rest of his life, knowing that he was responsible for these. And for whatever reason, you know, like, I don't know how much he suffered or if he did or if he didn't, but that's his own thing. And uh, not too long ago, I let go. And I think that that has been one of the most liberating things because, like, I always wanted to hold him responsible, you know. And, like, in reality, like, would that have changed anything? No. Like, in the contrary, I hope that he actually uh, was able to, like, live happy or he's still happy and, like, was able to get over that because we all made mistakes, you know? Like, I don't think, once again, I don't think anyone really plans to do something like this, you know? I, I do know, and I think it takes an awfully large human being to forgive the actions of someone else. So uh, you have my respect. You also have the respect of your brothers and sisters you serve with. You are in coma for almost a month. You wake up, you recover for months and months, and then what turns into years. But you never think really about going back to the barracks. I, I read that you you said, man, I lost my brothers. I lost my family. I lost my mission. Tell me what you mean by that. I always thought that being a veteran, it was just more than, oh, I did three years or I did five years and I got out, like, or especially being wounded. Like I I thought like the definition of a veteran was someone who was wounded in combat. I spent nearly two years at Walter Reed. I mean, half of it was recovery, um, surgery after surgery. Mm -hmm. Like they they did end up saving my leg. At that point, like I want to say like my leg actually being so damaged, it helped me a lot with my arm because losing a limb is kind of like a big deal. And, but I didn't have time to focus on my arm because yeah, my arm, when I woke up, it was gone. So instead of mourning my arm, I was like, my leg is still there. So we're going to do something. We're going to fix it. I'm going to walk. And they're like, well, I don't know. No, I'm like, it's there. I can wiggle my toes. We're going to walk. So like all my energy went into getting out of that wheelchair and getting back into walking. So after all, I guess it was a pretty good thing. After two years recovery, you are well enough to begin moving forward into your life. I understand you enrolled into college mm-hmm. and then quickly after you dropped out and you felt completely out of place and out of sorts and you're dealing with pain all the time. And so you become dependent on on something else. What, what do you turn to? I was warned once by my battalion commander, careful with those pills. Like he came to see me at the hospital. I grew up with, uh, with my grandmother. Like I grew up with very old school values. Like drugs is not something that was an option, like like it's not acceptable. When I got into this accident, another thing was like, I wanted to get out of the wheelchair. So I believe, I believe I had like five or six surgeries during that year to my leg, like bone grafts from my hip to there to like fix the bones and put metal rods. It was like constantly surgeries. So uh, wheelchairs, even though they have one with a welded axle, were not really an option because with one hand it was really hard to maneuver. 
so were crutches. So I was constantly like walking, like uh, I was inflicting a lot of pain and I was, I was just determined to get back on my feet. One easy way to do that was with the use of uh, narcotics, Percocets, Oxycontins. And I never thought anything wrong of them because there was a doctor prescri- prescribing them to me. And that became the norm. I mean, uh, I was technically uh, at one point taking an amount that I shouldn't be able to like touch a vehicle, but it was my prescription, you know? Right. And I didn't, I never thought of it as I was abusing drugs because I was taking something as prescribed. That monster was unleashed years after. I was aware that there would be side effects and, you know, liver damage or whatever, but they were long-term. And I was never thinking long-term. I was living today. It is so funny to say this because uh, so many people admire admire who I was back then because they're like, oh, you don't give a crap. You know, you're right. awesome. You know, that's that zero F mentality mm-hmm. that everybody praises like there. Like, oh, I give zero, you know? Mm-hmm. So I, I really appreciate you, Jonathan, uh, yeah, demilitarizing like, this conversation yes, so you can speak to my mom and the other listeners. That's, but we, we all are tracking with what you're saying. We appreciate you. Thank you, sir. So like that, that everyone purchases today, that is the worst thing. You have to find something to care for and you have to give it all. So when I didn't, like I wasn't thinking about the future. I was living for today. So side effects, long term, who cares? You know, mm-hmm. when I when I have my first child, uh, Orion, that's why I was like, you know what? I kind of want to be around in 20 years, you know? So let me um, let me get off these pills because I don't want them to. I don't, I don't want to die because of some liver, whatever. And when I tried to get off those pills and I saw like how truly handicapped I was because my handicap wasn't the arm. Now it was this dependency mm-hmm. and it just hit me. Like now on top of everything, now I'm a junkie. Now I can't get off. Mm-hmm. And it became a roller coaster from hell because I would fight so hard every month to get off of them. But then a week into it, I was so sick. I was so dependent from taking it for so many years that I would crave, go back to the VA, get another bottle. But now instead of taking my prescription as prescribed, I would just take more, you know, because yes. I wanted to make up for that pain from the last week. And then uh, I would take more, I would run out earlier. So it just went into just spiral out of control. While you're spiraling out of control, I've read also that that not only are you kind of losing grips with reality and ownership, but that you're becoming angrier about everything. In fact, I've read it in one spot. You're becoming like the very guy who took the life from you. <laughs> yes, sir. Tell me about that. That is the truth. I mean, uh, at this point in my life, I have become an expert. I don't know why, but I've become an expert at blaming everyone else. You know, like... Uh, I blame my parents for not being there, you know, which actually uh, blinded me for recognizing actually the efforts that my grandmother did to bring me up, which are greater than any parent. You know, like anyone who is raising a child that is biologically not theirs, you know, Mm. automatically is doing more of what that's what the parents are supposed to do. Mm. You know, like I don't brag about what I do for my kids because that's what I'm supposed to do. When someone else has to step into that position, you know, they should be, you should be more appreciative. And I wasn't because I was always mad because my parents weren't there because uh, the age difference between a grandmother and a grandkid is so greater that like we didn't play baseball together. We didn't, you know, mm-hmm. like, so it blinded me to that. So like what I was gonna say is at that point when I was angry because I carried this from my childhood, then I blamed this guy for causing my accident. Then I blamed Pharmas, big pharma or the doctors for, you know, for the addiction that I have. And in reality, like they might have not been all my choices, but you always have the power to like make another decision. And I didn't. So, yeah, I was angry. When did you begin? Because the story you're sharing, although it's different than anyone else listening right now, I think many of us have similarities to it where we feel victimized by an event, a date, another human being being born to the wrong set of parents, uh, into the wrong country, whatever the, the whatever the thing we feel victimized by, many of us can relate directly, directly to that. And yet you are no longer a victim, my friend. We're going to get there in a moment. You, you aren't, not even close. W- mm-hmm. When did you begin shifting from being a victim to being a victor? I know this is pretty cliche, but like you have to hit rock bottom to get back up, right? So after like, you know, like all this battle with the opiates and everything, um, I was at the bottom. I just couldn't take it anymore. Like all this was lingering around me. So one day I 
made the decision the, to end my life. And there was no better way to do it than with the same pills that were taking my life. So I was at the VA hospital, like I have gone like a week or so without medication. I was feeling terribly sick. I had an energy drink and I took 90, 40 milligram Oxycontins. Uh, that was my, my prescription for the month was uh, 90 Oxycontins. That was, um, that was the beginning of my rehabilitation. I, um, I woke up at the VA and as I said, for many years, I have been kind of away from the military community because yes. I didn't feel like I belong. When I woke up at the VA, I was ashamed of what I had done. And I was placed in a war full of veterans that are struggling with different issues. And I noticed that we weren't so different. And I felt at home. As sick as it sounds, like that was home. Like I was amongst the people that I care for, you know? Yes. I used a lot of the stories to to help me, you know, like deal with, with everything, you know? There was this guy named John as well, Vietnam veteran. And, you know, I'm still with my victim mentality and just very hateful towards everything. And during one of the classes, he just told me to shut up, <laughs> like very rudely. And then he, you have no idea, you know, like how good you have it. He was like, I cannot walk with you down the street today, you know, without three people saying, thank you for your service, you know? And he was like, you know what I got when I got home? I got speed on. I couldn't find a job. Like, you know, like he was telling me like everything that they have gone through and like kind of like puts things to perspective. And I'm like, you know what? It is true. Like we have it right now really good. And here I am trying to focus into the bad instead of taking advantage of the good. So that was the beginning of my rehabilitation process. As I was reading through your story and following you, uh, where you share bits and pieces of it, it struck me that you had two different, incredibly hard rehabs at different times in your life in sequence. So the first was the physical piece of figuring mm -hmm. out how to do life without your arm, and then at first without the use of your legs, and then learning how to use the legs that you had left and rehabilitate physically into life. And then eventually this emotional, mental, spiritual rehabilitation and so the question is, Jonathan, which one for you, as you look back on the two, was more difficult? Definitely the mental parser. Um, figuring out how to do things uh, with one hand are not that complicated. Matter of fact, they're pretty easy when that's your only choice. You know, when a lot of people tell you, how can you do that with one hand? I'm like, well, cannot, cannot do it with two, so with one. <laughs> so the physical part you figure out, the mental part is a hard one because guess what? You are, is like, right. I have never played chess against myself, but I think that would be a really complicated game, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think that's like mental adversity. That's what it is because every move that you're trying to make, guess what? That voice inside of you, the same one that was with me and SF telling me to quit or like the same one that we have every single day, you know, the late, the one that says, no, sleep 10 more minutes or like, no, don't go to the gym or don't do this. That voice is the opponent inside of your head. So like every time you're trying to make a move, that one is going to make a move and try to block it. Like, no, why do you want to go running? Like, who likes running, you know? Was there an individual who inspired you to recognize the gift of owning your physicality? Because it seems to me, looking at your story, that becoming as physically fit as you currently are and being part of that brotherhood that you are now a part of, that that was a monstrous stride forward on your journey toward full recovery. So was there a spark that kind of got you moving forward in this direction? Absolutely, sir. And I can tell you his name really clear is Jeff Farmer. He was my mentor in Operation Enduring Warrior, and he's still my mentor, my good friend. So years after, I kind of like got my life together. Someone uh, reached out to me uh, about doing events with Operation Enduring Warrior, which I did. It was amazing. I love the community, and that's what I strive to be. I wanted to be in there. So Jeff Farmer, every single race that I did, he was there with me. He actually kept track of every mile that we move and how fast we did it and everything, you know? The following year, they were the Induct, which are the tryouts to become a mass athlete for Operation Enduring Warrior. Induct takes place at Camp McCall, which is the same camp where Special Forces trains, the same camp where I had quit years ago and changed my life. A big part of it is the physical endurance, you know? And we have to make sure that the guys that wear the mask, you know, like they are in top shape. Why? Because we are helping other people move forward. So like the gas mask is for two reasons. Um, one, because uh, 
it helps us share some of the pain that these guys are going through because there is nothing nice about running with gas masks or doing the stuff that we do. Mm-hmm. And the second one is about remaining anonymous behind the mask. You know, like the mask symbolizes the team. It doesn't matter who's behind it. You know, it's who we're helping outside. At this point of my life, I was in shape. But guess what? I had not run in years because the injuries to my leg. And the doctor said, you can't run anymore. So I was like, that one, I never argue. I was like, great, never again. Until we went to Indoc, Jeff took me for a run. And I'm just staring at him. And I'm like, you know, my doctor says I can't run, but like, I wasn't going to say no. And to this day, he has never admitted it. But um, he told me we were lost. And he told me, stay on this road and I'll see you at the next intersection. I got to find out where we are. Don't stop running. That was the last thing that he said. So I ran. And I got to the intersection and he wasn't there. So I kept running and I just never stopped running. And I know that day, something that I remember from myself was there's always someone watching. That day, I finally got back to camp and I just saw Farmer and like he just walked by me and he was like, so did you stop running? And I was like, <laughs> no. I was like, well, you finally got your chance for redemption, you know. How did that run and that day change you? When it happens, you don't realize, wow, that was a turning point. Outside of a terrific accident or a, a beautiful anniversary, you don't realize that the thing you just did was a turning point in your life, typically when it's happening. But then you look back and then you recognize that day with Farmer, before that white pickup truck forced you, and as you're running mile after mile with that mask on, that it, this was a turning point in my life. How, how did that day change you? Again, it was my chance for redemption. I mean, uh, I never... And I told you at the beginning, I never quit anything. Anything I started, I always finished, except that. And I never had a chance to redeem myself. I can't tell you what I was going to do. Like, would I have come back? Would I have trained harder? Because it wasn't physically. Like, honestly, back when I quit, it wasn't because it was too much for me physically. I, I was in 10 times better shape than I am today. It was in my head. And I never had a chance to find out who, what I was really made out of. And what are the odds of someone, especially after an injury, returning to the same place, you know, where I always held that moment, not even the accident, I always held the moment that I quit as if I didn't quit, I would not be back over there. This would have never happened. You know, like uh, Mm -hmm. I would watch these guys in Afghanistan, you know, like conducting these missions. And I was like, that was supposed to be my life. That's what I planned. Not this. That's what created everything. So I recognized it at the time going back there. It was amazing. And at the end of the day, it was the mission that I started before mm-hmm. was accomplished that day. Because when I went through Special Forces, like I told you, it wasn't about becoming the best sniper or the best demolition guy or the best whatever. It's about making a difference. It's about looking over the rest of my soldiers. And, you know, I might not be doing it as active duty. I'm doing it as a veteran right now, but I was able to finish in doc. I earned my position in OAW and I am helping other soldiers. That's why I went there in the first place. You're helping not only your soldiers, but everyone else who's looking in, watching your stuff, listening to your speeches. Uh, One of them was a six-year-old little boy. You, in one of these athletic competitions that you were part of, did a rope climb. Climbing as a young 22-year-old guy at the high point of your physicality, up a rope is difficult. Here you are a little bit more seasoned in life. You have a couple more years, uh, tread years on the, on, the, on the tires, and you've got one arm to climb this rope. You climb this thing, you make it to the very top, the crowd goes crazy, and then the, the video goes viral. There was a six-year-old kid, I believe his name was Ryder. He mm-hmm. had lost an arm, and you learned about this. Tell, tell me the story of, of that video and of Ryder. I love that kid. <laughs> I actually just finished talking to his mom today. Uh, he doesn't know, but I'm going to California in two weeks, and that's the day after his birthday. They actually traveled to Chicago for my wedding. Like, we have become family. This is the Jack Buck. This is what I was telling you, like, that we all have the opportunity to do something and change someone's life. Um, the video was posted uh, in a Spartan page. I'm reading through the messages. Most of them are like, oh, my God, this is amazing, or blah, 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 you know? And I'm like, thank you, thank you. Mm -hmm. But then there was one that, like, sparked my curiosity. And the message said, I cannot wait for my son to wake up so I can show him this. 
and bring him hope. Like just those words alone, like made me reach out to this lady directly. Her name is Megan. And I was like, what do you mean? Why bring him hope? So Ryder, he had a very rare disease, like a bacteria that went into his spine and caused paralysis of his left arm. Before that, Ryder was a very, well, he still is a very active kid, but he was very active. Like he, uh, he liked Ninja Warrior mm -hmm. and Spartan. She wanted to show him the video to show him that, you know what, like even though you don't have use of your arm, you can still do this. So when I heard that, I reached out to a friend of mine from Operation Enduring Warrior, Norby Lara, because he lives near him. And I was like, hey, can you go visit this kid? You know, I can't go to California. So he went over there. He's a right arm amputee. And he showed him the basic things, how to tie your shoes, to spend the day together. It was an amazing thing. Mm. And from there, then I got a message from the mother. that says, you know what? Like seeing you guys and what you guys did, that like, he wants to do a Spartan race. So we're going to Lake Tahoe. So I was like, no, you're not. Not without me. <laughs> so bought airplane tickets. Uh, Jeff Farmer was there with us, uh, a few other people, like all the people that kind of were involved in this team rider movement. Mm -hmm. We all managed, uh, there were fundraisers to pay for our airplane tickets, whatever. And like we got to California. I'm known for like doing crazy things. So like <laughs> this kid is like seven years at the time. And we go to California and then I finally meet the mom and I meet him personally. And we're, he's supposed to do the kids partner race. And I was like, no, I just flew across the country. I didn't come here to see a kids partner race. You're coming with us. So we take him into the course, world championships in Lake Tahoe. A good friend of ours, which is the announcer, uh, Rob Lede, he does this Spartan send-off when, you know, like every Spartan is ready right there to take off and they introduce Ryder. Megan is crying. And that was one moment. And that was, it's a decision to do the right thing. Doing the right thing sometimes involves work. I hear it in your own heart how that experience changed you how you felt about it, how you became a better version of yourself going forward after meeting Ryder, after flying to California, after going through this race with him. I'm just curious, how do you think being with you guys, guys that he looked up to as heroes, how do you think going through the race, the Spartan race with you changed him? That kid is just, he's unstoppable. I don't doubt that he will be doing exactly the same things physically, knowing us or not knowing us. He would have figured out how to climb that rope and do all this stuff. But like the beautiful part is to making them feel part of it. You know, like I don't like the wedge between military and civilians, veteran services and not. Like, you know, like the difference between a lot of us and other people outside is that yes, we serve for X amount of years or so. But like guess what? We are all now part of this show called life. And you shouldn't just lend a hand to someone because they share the same job as you did, you know? Right. So uh, that integration, that was honestly like the first time and with, with us with W, like he's like our honoree. That kid, yeah, he's not a veteran. He's part of our team and uh, he knows it. It feels good, like letting him be part of something great. Jonathan, what would you say to whether it's a six-year-old who's lost the ability to use an arm or a guy who was active duty who was in a terrible accident and lost his arm and almost lost the ability to move forward into life or someone dealing with a challenging relationship, they're upside down financially, whatever it might be, and, and they feel victimized by what has happened to them. What's the encouragement you might give to someone struggling today? To everyone is face your obstacles. And I know this is crazy, but like just forget about your plans. I, I honestly believe the biggest problem like with me, like it wasn't losing an arm. Like if I would have lost my arm in combat, I think I would have never gotten depressed because I would have like walked with my chest up like, yep, you know, infantry soldiers, I know for this and this is how it happened. It was the fact that it wasn't as planned. And I think that's the same with everyone in life, like um, in your relationship, like, you know, like no one gets married and have kids because I think, you know what, I'm going to get divorced in five years and spend a bazillion dollars in attorneys or give up my house. No one does, right? Like, it's just things don't go as planned. Just life doesn't go as planned. Now you're presented with this obstacle and you have to deal with it. And that's what I didn't do. Like, when I was presented with these obstacles, instead of just accepting the fact, I was like, no, that wasn't my choice. I didn't want this obstacle. And I'm going to sit here and complain. Guess what? The obstacle doesn't go away. There's no way around it. Face it, smile, get it over with. Well, get it over with is a decision you almost made lo a long time ago. You almost took your own life. And I read 
it was because of your kids that you almost took your life, that you attempted suicide. You mm-hmm. felt like a failure and you did not want them to grow up in the shadow of a failure. You clearly aren't a failure anymore, but I've also read that today you choose life daily because of your kids. So I want you to talk as we wrap up this episode about that dichotomy that you attempted suicide because of your children and now you choose to live because of your children. So it's a conversation that I have with Martina. Honestly, when, um, when we lost Thomas, took it pretty hard because uh, it was, I know this is pretty selfish, but it, I spent a lot of time away from home. As cool as it might look, in social media or so, because I mean, this airport, I mean, in this city this day and the other one, it's, it's not as cool. Like, like I wanna be home, I wanna be with my kids, I wanna be more with my wife, but I do believe that what we're doing is important. So when, when I lost Thomas, I know it's uh, it was pretty selfish, but I'm like, is anything that we do really making a difference? You know, it's someone so close to us that we care for so much, but that was a selfish part. Um, what I did tell her was this, I do understand. Like, I, I wish I didn't, but I understand why he did it. Because uh, I still can think about the decisions or my thoughts leading to the, the day I attempted suicide and everything made sense. All these guys who are committing suicide today, they share the same thoughts. And what is that? Is thinking your loved ones are better off without you. That uh, whatever you're going through, you know, is uh, something that you cannot overcome. And in my mind, everything rationalized. In my mind, like I was like, like, what type of father am I? You know, like, what am I going to be? Like, I'd rather be dead than be a deadbeat father. At that point, I didn't think I was going to be able to shake off the, the amount of pain that I had. So I was like, if this is what the rest of my life is going to be, this pain, I'd rather end it. And everything made sense. I still understand. I still understand those. One of the big things that have changed is uh, meeting an amazing group of people and being able to put things into perspective. A uh, dear friend of mine, Rob Granville, the, the guy's amazing. And um, when I met him, I just say him, uh, he's a left leg amputee, so it's kind of easy to just judge the book by the cover. So I'm like, oh, it's some other guy in Afghanistan, just kicking rocks around, kicking an ID. So yes, partially right, he lost his leg in Afghanistan. But um, after his return home, he ended up losing his brother to suicide. And Earl has taken me under his wing and I can see daily how much he misses his brother. And that puts things into perspective. Right now is not for discussion if ending your life will end the pain or if other ones will be better off without you or not. Those are questions that we cannot answer, you know? Like the one thing that I know for a fact is that when you die, those who love you, you know, are gonna suffer. and. I don't want to do that. You don't want to do that. And you uh, not only are choosing a different path, you are encouraging and inspiring as many people as you possibly can to join you on that path. And uh, Mm -hmm. the final question I want to ask you before we step into the, the Live Inspired 7 is the Operation Enduring Warrior. Just give us a snapshot of what this organization is and how we can learn more about it. I encourage everyone to please search it. They can go to our website, EnduringWarrior.org. And this is not a community for uh, veterans who are disabled, who have faced this. Like, this is about being part of a family. This is about still maintaining a purpose. I think I probably mentioned this like four times in the podcast. And so, like, it should be very clear. I hate running. I really don't like running. But I have friends, veterans, uh, many people who uh, challenge themselves to do something like the New York City Marathon, the Boston Marathon. And I now run and I train, you know, because I vow to be by their side. So it gives me a purpose. It gives me a purpose to stay physically fit, actually like maintain myself morally straight as well. Like uh, I know my actions will inspire or affect the decisions that other ones make. If I choose to become one of the broad vets and just like, promote beers and guns and whatever, you know, like, how am I helping? With Operation During World and my purpose, you know, like, I stay morally straight because I want other ones to see that there is a better path, you know? I hear you loud and clear. I think yeah. I think you're choosing the, the proper path. And Jonathan, we have seven questions that tether all of our guests together, all of these leaders that I look up to, and I think our listeners look up to as well. You're certainly one of them. And the very first question we ask all of them is, what is the best book you have ever read? Hmm. The best book I ever read is called 
Raising Men. It was written by a Navy SEAL. It's, a, it's about fatherhood. Absolutely stunning. It was able to translate into terms that I know, you know, like things about parenting. Like, for instance, I was always very strict when it comes to participation trophies. So the guy has a chapter in there where he goes, and now, you know, participation trophies. So I'm like, yeah, destroy them. And this is a Navy SEAL, obviously way more decorated than I, than I ever was. So he's talking, he's like, I look at my chest and what is that? These are participation trophies. I'm not taking anything away from these medals or what they mean, but what is the medal for global war and terrorism? Did I kill Bin Laden? No. What it means is that I signed up for the military to say that I was going to do a job and I did it. And it's a recognition Like you know, we cannot be that strict. Like you have to celebrate your kids so-called participation trophies because that's actually the main, that's it. I guess, like thing of our life about life is, is participating, is being there, doing what you're that's supposed right. to do. The audacity to go into the arena. Just get mm -hmm. in there, man. See what happens next. Yes, sir. So, Jonathan, what, what's one positive characteristic, one trait that you possessed as a child growing up that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? I think I still do, which uh, as a kid, I was never afraid of the unknown. Hmm. I'm more afraid of the what if. I have a lot of scars. And I've never really like looked back into life like, oh, which what, what would it be if I jump off that cliff? No, I jumped. <laughs> so you're still living it, you're saying? Absolutely, sir. If, if your home caught fire and your family, your animals, Zoe, everybody's out, you have an opportunity to run in and grab one item, just one item. What's that one thing you would grab? Nothing, sir. I actually like I fantasize about that um, a few years, uh, two years ago, actually, like we were faced with a hurricane. And I was hoping that everything was underwater. Um, part of my evolution through life has been uh, wanting to become a minimalist. And whatever item it is that you're asking me for right now is probably the first one that I will leave. Like I want to become more pure. Like I want to like not being attached to anything. In one of your speeches, I heard you share that many military men and women keep shadow boxes of the, of mm -hmm. their flags and their decorations and the, the medals and. And your point is, I don't want a shadow box. I want to wear my medals as I show up each day. And it, mm -hmm. it is in the way that I attack the day that I want to be remembered, not for what I did yesterday or 20 years ago. And I think that's an interesting approach. And there is a power behind those medals. Like, everything is through interpretation. Like, for me, I hate them. For now, every single medal that I actually get throughout the weekends, all the events that I do, I ended up mailing it to kids with either um, terminal diseases or they're ill. And there is a power behind that. Like, what for me would be a possession that will tie me down, I can give it to other ones. And I know that's something that you can relate to. Like, I was amazed with everything that Jack Buck did for you. And, like, actually, even giving you his Hall of Famer crystal ball, right. it's, yes, it's something that he earned and he must have loved. But, like, believe me, in your hands, it meant so much more. It's beautifully said. I think what we most treasure is made even more powerful when we give it away. Mm -hmm. if, if you could sit on a bench overlooking a beach and have a long conversation with anyone living or dead, who would you want to be seated right next to? My grandmother. Oh, that's beautiful. Hey, did you ever tell her thank you? Did she ever fully recognize how much you appreciated what she did? No, sir. It has taken me, and I'm still to this day. She was brilliant, and the way that everything that she taught me is just making sense right now. Right. It has shaped me into being a father. The day will come where, where you'll have that a conversation, and I think mm -hmm. it's going to be a, a beautiful one. What, what's yes, the sir. best advice your grandmother or anyone else has ever given you? Well, I'm going to tell you, like, my grandmother and there is a guy, uh, Scott Mann. He teaches uh, military. Actually, he teaches civilian as well in the art of communication. So my grandmother told me to plant a tree, write a book, and have children. Hmm. And I remember writing a book. I'm like, that sounds like a big task. I haven't even done the trick, to be honest. And she said, like, I'd say write a book. I didn't say publish it. You know, like, it's like, I don't care what you write about. You can write about, but it will reflect the way that you think. And it will live forever. So it will your kids. And so will the tree. That in common with what uh, Scott taught me, which is leave your footprints. None of us are going to be here forever. But if the time that we're here we can leave the footprints to help other ones, to guide other ones, even after you're gone, I think my job is done. Mm -hmm. Well, as you leave those footprints, what do you wish you would have been able to tell your 20-year-old self? So if you could tell your 20-year-old self anything right now, what would you tell yourself? Nothing. 
Once again, nothing, sir. Because uh, if someone will tell you today anything about your future, that will change exactly where I am today. There is a few people in the world, and you made that list really fast, who I think are sincere when they say, I wouldn't change anything. You know, like everything that happened to me has led me to where I am. Yes. I'm, I'm not that guy. Uh, that, I can tell you honestly, I'm not that guy. If I had the power to change that date, as much as I'm helping or whatever it is I'm doing right now, I would not choose this. I would have chose to continue my military careers plan and not going through any of this, but I don't. So I think if I was to meet my 20 year old self and I tell them anything, it would avoid a lot of the suffering that I went through, which ultimately has made me who I am today. That's interesting. I really appreciate your honesty around that because a lot of us claim we're, we're grateful for the storms. Well, yeah, maybe. But I appreciate you saying, John, listen, my storm has been rough and I would not choose it. If I could go back, I would get rid of it, but I can't. So I'm going to embrace it. Uh, that, that's mm -hmm. a powerful uh, reckoning. Absolutely, so the, sir. The final question for our friend Jonathan Lopez is, Jonathan, it has been said that all great servants, all great leaders, all great Spartans can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? goes back to that one, die first, then quit. There's no quitting. Like I believe, and this is not just about like proving how strong you are physically or some dumb stuff. You're worth as much as you're worth. You know, if you say you're gonna do something, do it, right? Mm -hmm. And that that's the way that other people judge you. I really don't care about other people and how they judge me. I care about the way that I think about myself. So once you make quitting a habit, I don't care what other ones think, you know it inside. You know, it depreciates you as a person. So that's why I would like finish what you said you would start. My friends, Jonathan Lopez has indeed finished what he started. He is leaving Footprints. He refuses to quit. He's part of Operation Enduring Warrior. He is making a difference in the lives of those who served and all the lives of us who are looking up to, uh, to them. So Jonathan, I want to thank you for being part of the solution and part of my life now. No, thank you, sir. My friends, that is Jonathan Lopez. I am John O'Leary, and today is your day. Live inspired. My friends, thank you so much for listening to today's Live Inspired podcast. I'd love to hear from you. Send me an email at podcast at johnolearyinspires.com with your feedback, maybe your guest suggestions for future shows, stories on how this podcast has helped you live more inspired, or questions that you have for me. Again, send that email to me at podcast at johnolearyinspires.com. I can't wait to share with you the next episode.